Thank you so much and uh, welcome. And, and my name is Porachisa Hakbor, and it's a real honor to moderate this conversation. Um, I'm very, very pleased to be here, and I'm pleased to introduce our panelists. So I will go right into that. Holly Dagros is an Iranian American who spent her formative years in Iran. She's a senior fellow at the Washington-based think tank, the Atlantic Council, and author of the groundbreaking report, Iranians and Social Media. She has 15 years of experience in the Middle East, living in Tehran, Cairo, and Jerusalem. Holly regularly conducts radio, television, and print, review, print interviews for outlets including CNN, NBC News, NPR, and the New York Times. Her work on Iran has appeared in numerous publications, including Foreign Policy, Time, and the Washington Post. She is a proud former Angelino and UCLA alumni. Thank you, Holly. Next, we have Sahar Goreshi, an Iranian artist based in London and Los Angeles. Her works have roots in activism and nostalgia. Sahar uses her work to discuss topics such as migration, diaspora, and Western standards of beauty through illustration, animation, and film. She's the, found, she's the founder of filmmaking platform Journey to Dawn, a resident artist of the Collective for Black Iranians, and has used her illustrations to capture the diversity of people all over Iran. Since the death of Mahsa Zina Amini, Sahar has used her art to amplify the voices of Iranian and Kurdish women fighting for their lives and freedom. Thank you so much, Sahar. And finally, we have Paradis Mahdavi. Paradis Mahdavi is an anthropologist and the provost of the University of Montana. Her approach to higher education has been informed by her personal journey as an Iranian-American woman growing up in the United States, as well as her training as an anthropologist. She has focused her academic career on diversity, inclusion, human trafficking, migration, sexuality, human rights, feminism, and public health. Paradis has published five single-authored books and one edited volume, in addition to num numerous journal and news articles. She has consulted for a wide variety of organizations, including the US government, Google, and the United Nations. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Arizona State University, for having me. And it's, I would say, absolutely incredible to be sitting uh, next to so many um, accomplished Iranian women who are inspiring in the, their own different ways. Um, well, I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about is the role of social media. Um, some of you, if you've been following Iran closely for at least a decade or so, remember the 2009 post-election protest known as the Green Movement. Maybe you'll remember Twitter had come out in the same year and a lot of people called the Green Movement um, a social media uprising. And I, I would say actually um, that isn't entirely accurate. Um, at the time, um, message, messages like text messages and word of mouth is what got people into the streets in Iran at the time. And it was those videos that family and friends uploaded onto things like Facebook that were actually amplified by Iranians in the diaspora that made it such a big international headline. Now, to the contrary, when we look at social media today, I would argue and say that the current ongoing protests in Iran in the wake of Masa Jina Amini's death um, at, the, at the hands of the so-called morality police, um, you actually see that this was actually a social media uprising. And 
it started with the hashtag Mass Armenian Persian, and it was these viral pictures of Massa um, hooked up to an ICU unit in the hospital, unconscious, that angered so many Iranians. And then you, of course, saw these viral images of her parents embracing. And it was that anger online that really poured into the streets in 31 provinces in Iran. And right now, we're currently in month three of these ongoing protests. And um, I really want to talk a bit about the role of social media in all this. Um, social media is actually the only way for Iranians' voices to be heard by the world. 80% um, of Iranians over the age of 18 use social media and messaging apps. And they're not using it the way you and I use it. They actually have to use circumvention tools like virtual private networks or VPNs to actually get online. So a lot of this viral footage you're seeing it takes numerous VPNs for Iranians just to upload one item. And so that in itself is a feat of its own. And 35% um, of the world's populous websites are also blocked in the country. So everything you're seeing coming online, it's because they want their voices to be heard. And um, just to give you a little bit more information about why information and communications technology is integral, well, it's because social media is actually an accountability tool. Um, Iranians not just use social media to um, document these human rights violations in the country and upload them online for the world to see, but also because they hope that human rights um, organizations and the international community will document them and pay attention, and media outlets, of course, to actually hone in on what's happening because Western-based journalists cannot really freely report in the country. But they also use social media for other means as well. They use it to mock the regime officials, um, to make satire, and to draw attention with hashtags. Um, one instance I'll give you is that when the Supreme Leader, um, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, denied Western vaccines to Iranians, um, many Iranians were so desperate for them that they started the hashtag SOS Iran so that people in the world could hear them and hear that in this country where the largest amount of deaths and cases in the Middle East were unable to obtain Western vaccines. One of the quotes I just want to leave you with is from a rights activist that was based in Iran and she said, Social media is our only hope for making changes here. It has been our way of communicating with the world when we had no other chance. Everything else is banned, and now they are trying to cut our only heard, hope to be heard by the world. And that was actually in reference to the fact that the Islamic Republic's actually implementing a so-called internet protection bill, which in essence would deprive Iranians um, from the internet in a array of ways, including criminalizing VPNs, and its most draconian form would actually separate their access to the international internet that we all use here and make it impossible for these videos to leave the country. And so I'll leave it with that. Yeah, thank you. Was there another video that we want to queue up right now, or should we? Later. Later, okay, that's great. Um, thank you so much, Holly, for that. I think that's a really important starting point for a lot of people because this is playing out in a whole different way for a lot of us, no matter who we are. Um, it's, it's not new for just one group. It's, it's taken on a new tenor entirely. So I wanted to go to you, Paradis, because you've mentioned um, this era's ch children of resistance versus children of revolution. 
Can you talk a little bit more about this? I love that phrasing. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's really, truly an honor to share the stage with all of you. This, just meeting you all tonight has, has absolutely been one of the um, highlights of this very challenging time. So thank you for that. And thank you to Arizona State University for having me back. Um, I miss ASU tremendously. It's great to be here at ASU LA. Um, but to, to your question, I think one of the things that is really um, making this moment distinct is the truly intergenerational nature of what we're seeing in Iran today. And it's being led not by children of the revolution, like you or I. You know, many of us, we would be considered in that generation of children born during and immediately after the, the revolution of 1979. Um, but this is being led by what I call the children of resistance. And this is a generation that was born not necessarily into revolution and just the post-trauma of revolution and the Iran-Iraq war, but this is a generation born into resistance. And so they're inheriting not only intergenerational trauma, but intergenerational strength. So this is a generation born to the activists, the children of the revolution who began fighting, speaking back um, to the regime, speaking out against the regime as early as 1999 the, or the early 2000s. Again, the children of revolution were kind of at the forefront of the green movement um, that Holly talked about, uh, you know, out, out, in the, out in the streets protesting. Um, and, but even the green movement was intergenerational. So it was people like my parents and, and myself. Now what we're seeing is my daughter's generation. So I have a 12-year-old daughter. And one of the most inspiring things has been watching school girls, school-aged young, young people out there bravely singing anthems, tearing out pages from their textbooks, saying enough is enough. And they are doing it with so much courage. And they're supported by my mom's generation and our generation, that children of the revolution. So that intergenerational trauma that we have, they've inherited, but they've also inherited our intergenerational strength, which is why I call them the children of resistance. And, and they are the ones who are even leading the, the, the strike that we're seeing taking place today. That's really beautifully put. And I want to come back to those terms too, like resistance and revolutions. I know Sahar has some things to say about that too. But before we do that, actually, I want to go to you, Sahar, when you're talking about, you've talked a lot about centering people on the ground, right? And minorities in Iran, which is also you know, very, very important to me too. Can you please talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And then we'll pick some of um, So it's really important, obviously, like we know, I say Gina Amini, but everyone knows about Mahsa Amini. Um, Kurdish Iranian woman, um, her roots, if we go back to Kurdistan, we say Zanzendegi Azadi, woman like freedom, but it comes from Zanjian Azadi, which was used by many Kurdish Iranian women, like Kurdish women um, in Kurdistan. Um, so it's been there for many years. Um, so that's why I think it's so important. And so many, so many Kurdish Iranian people have died. So many people in Baluchistan, Sistan, Baluchistan, Zahedan have died. Um, 
when we're talking about minorities as well, we're also talking about um, the LGBTQI plus community. I mean, before the death of Massa Gina Amini, um, two LGBT LGBTQI plus activists were at the risk of being executed. Um, and they are still fighting on the streets of Iran. It's these minorities that are fighting, people with disabilities in the disability community, I mean. Um, this is an amazing girl called Ava who is continuing to go into the street um, by using her wheelchair and she's giving out flowers, roses, um, saying Zanz in the Yazadi, and it's and she went out the other day and sang happy birthday to Tumaj because he's in prison. He's a political activist and rapper who's been put in prison. Um, so it's people like this who are doing the most on the ground. And I think um, a really good a couple of platforms that highlight this is the Collective for Black Iranians. They really do highlight um, the, like obviously what's going on on the ground, especially with regards to minorities. Um, I know a lot of Middle East Matters, these platforms really do push that to see what's actually happening and the faces um, of the minorities that are unfortunately being lost. So it's really important to highlight all these people in these communities because they are at the forefront fighting on the ground. Yeah, there's a really inspiring language of like inclusivity now that I, th I feel personally had been really missing a lot in different eras, even though there were attempts made at it, but it almost feels like we've culturally grown to a point where the general public is getting more and more of an in in this sort of inclusivity. Part of it is, you know, you know, green movement. Last time I didn't have a cane. You know, I wasn't disabled back then. So as we all grow up, there's different parts of our identities too that obviously evolves. So it's pretty amazing. Holly, I want to go to you for a second too. I mean, you've done the amazing piece of foreign policy on Gen Z's grappling with this too. And you've been such a great observer of like Gen Z, which is such a big part of this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I guess I like the children of the resistance. I guess we can call Gen Z would be a better way to phrase it, as Paradis said. Um, and this is just me essentially picking back on what Paradis said a bit earlier, but just to add some more context. Um, well, Paradis mentioned the children of the revolution, and I think that that is a really important term because these were, as Paradis said, children that were born during or after the 1979 revolution. And the interesting thing is in Iran, we don't talk about, um, we talk about generations and decades. We call them so the, the, the 60th generation, the 70th and the 80th generation, and, and it's a reflection of the Iranian calendar. So Iranian Gen Z, or children that were born between 1999 and 2012 are or the 1380 um, calendar year. And um, what's, the reason I'm using Western terms to describe them is because I think that there's a lot of commonality between Western Gen Z and Iranian Gen Z in the fact that this is a first generation that actually was born with internet, social media, and satellite dishes, information and communications technology at their fingertips. And so with that came a lot of things. I mean, Iranian Gen Z actually has a lot of the same interests and preferences in Iran. Um, they listen to a lot of the same music. They, whether it be Dua Lipa or K-pop, um, they watch the same shows, they, such as The Mandalorian or um, the Kardashians, from what I've heard some kids tell me, and the Game of Thrones. So there's a lot of commonalities there, and I'm not trying to generalize. This is, of course, not every Iranian Gen Zer, but just to give you a sense about who are these kids right now um, protesting. And so 
these Gen Zers also have learned not just about their country's past, but also our ability have found their ability to question the leadership of the Islamic Republic because they do their own research. Um, social media has given them the opportunity to access information in a way that their parents and grandparents were not able to. So they're able to see the misfortunes of their country in real time, be it through protests, violent crackdowns, viewed on Instagram accounts, um, or even disparity of wealth between themselves and regime elites. So I'm sure some of you have heard of the account Rich Tids of Tehran, for example. So um, these youth, essentially, they interact online and watch youth in other countries live freely, um, particularly those in the West. And Iranians, especially this youth, recognize the injustices and hypocrisy in their society, as well as their wasted potential. So they're not going to settle. When they, they're not going to accept the living standards that their parents have. And when you see these youth on the streets, it's because they don't want this for their future. Um, and I think it's when you talk to them, the, the young Gen Z protesters in Iran, we talk a lot about women being at the forefront, um, leading these protests. But it's actually, I would say, Gen Z women um, with, uh, leading them. And the one thing that I keep hearing over and over again is that um, despite they know full well they go to, into these streets that they'll be beaten to death with batons or shot to death with bullets, that that's not stopping them. They are fed up with the status quo and do not want the Islamic Republic, and they're literally willing to die for it. And it's and as one, I, I would just read a quote from one of them, a 22-year-old that lives in Tehran. She said, we will not be silenced by the government's bullets. For every fallen, many rise up in the name of freedom. And so every time this regime kills young, talented Iranian youth, more rise up because that's just all they're able to do. And so, um, Yes, this is a generation, it's the first time that they're protesting in the streets, but they're really a force to be reckoned with. I really would love if you could uh, talk a little bit about I Iran today and the historical context too. You've done such a beautiful job of that. If that's okay, if you can. Yeah, we have to talk about these things, right? Because the truth dies in the darkness, right? So we've got to bring light to it. Um, you know, I think we can look at the historical context uh, of Iran, of some of the major movements, the major social movements, the major street politics, and the role that women have played in all of these major movements, not only in what we're seeing today in 2022, um, but dating back more than 100 years to the Mashrute Revolution, the Constitutional Revolution in the early 1900s, women were actually at the forefront of the Constitutional Revolution, fighting for equal rights for all. Um, fast forward to 1953 and the time of Prime Minister Mossadegh, you had a lot of women supporting Mossadegh, supporting the oil nationalization policies, and women on both sides, really, um, of you know, the, the coup that ensued. And then when we go to, to the time of the revolution, um, you know, 1978, 79, 
You also had women on, on various sides. One of the most interesting things reaction-wise that I heard you know, here in the United States is people would often ask me, well, it seemed like during the Shah everything was all great and perfect and then the, the revolution happened. And so why did that happen and why were there women you know, protesting? And, and again, that's why we, we look to the historical context. And you know, Ali Ansari has done a great job of this, but showing the role of women in also protesting and also suffering at the hands of Savak and, and the, the Shah's secret police. And so it's complicated, right? I mean, history, it's layered. But you've seen women at the forefront. Um, and, and then in, you know, during the revolution, the same thing. You had women on all sides. You had women feminists who were uh, self-proclaimed Islamic Marxists. You know, following Shariati and and other women, actually, when you think about Khomeini, and um, it's so interesting listening to Holly talk about social media. It's also important to contextualize. You know, those of you who were alive during the revolution, the role of cassette tapes. So yes, they didn't. We didn't have social media back then, but cassette tapes. And and Khomeini used to record from exile in France on these cassette tapes. And women were amongst those who smuggled the cassette tapes in. So it's interesting to think about kind of where we are now social media-wise in the historical context of a different type of media or medium, which is sound. Um, uh, and, and then you, know, you, you had this moment where when the Islamist uh, regime came to power, um, suddenly you know, women were kind of at the heart of the operationalization of power, right? Because it was women and women's bodies in hijab. But not only that, right? I mean, the, the, the idea behind the precursor to the morality police was, it was actually, the, their title was the Committee on Islamic Values, Committee on Islamic Revolutions, which Iranians just called Komite, or the committee. Um, and it wasn't until 2005 that they were given the nomenclature Gashta Irshad, or Guidance Patrol Morality Police. That was under Ahmadinejad's time. But, but prior to that, they were the, the Comité. And they were formed you know, just after the revolution. And um, their, their charge was to uphold right and forbid wrong. Uh, and part of that was, you know, um, mandatory veiling, hijab laws, et cetera. But part of that was also just bodies and comportment and heterosocializing, partying, having fun, right, is, 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 is one of the things that they were, they were looking at. And you know, over, over time, as the children of the revolution who weren't around during the time of the Shah, as they came of age, there was a lot of tension between the young people who were the majority of Iran's population, right? You had this huge population boom in the 1980s and early 90s um, as a result of pronatalist policies that were then followed by family planning policies in the mid-90s. So in the 80s, the regime promoted pronatalist policies, encouraging families to have as many children as possible. Um, the idea being that more bodies were needed to fight the Iran-Iraq war. They wanted to birth more believers. And so families were given incentives like tax breaks and free plots of lands for having more children. In the 90s, they did a complete 180, and they started mandating family planning programs because they realized that their population had boomed so much that they wouldn't be able to catch up infrastructurally. And so they did a complete 180, and so much so that the um, fertility rate per woman dropped from 4.1 to 1.7 within a three-year time span in the mid-1990s, earning Iran the Family Planning Award from the United Nations 
fund for population advancement. I mean, and there's so many of these interesting nuances, right, when you look at Iran's history. Um, but so what you had is, you know, when I started doing my field work in the late 90s and early 2000s, you had 70% of Iran's population under the age of 30, right? So highly educated, large population, you know, young people who were very much engaged in global conversations and discourse. And that, you know, they are building on the movements, back, dating back to Mashrute, they start to build on those movements by going out in the streets, by using the universities, by also using their bodies to speak back to a regime that is so over-focused on their bodies, right? The this is a regime that came to power um, under a fabric of bringing back morality to a population that was seen as or West toxicated, this sort of this, this idea that it, the population had become overly secular and very critical of that. They, they wanted to correct it by swinging the pendulum the other way. And, and the, you know, the focus became socializing uh, bodies and behavior. And so young people began speaking back with their bodies. And so we began to see thing, movements like My Stealthy Freedom, and Masi Ali Nejad has been a really big part of that. Um, we saw the One Million Signatures campaign in the, in the early 2000s. Um, and you know, a number of um, women-led social movements um, but that really were about bringing equality to all. And so, you know, one of the things we know from studying social movements is that success begets success. And so with each subsequent movement, there's been more momentum and more people joining, which, you know, to put it in context, we saw the Green Movement in 2009, and then we've seen various rounds of protests, 2011, 2014, even a couple of years ago, and each time it has spread from just being the urban centers or just a certain class to becoming larger and larger and larger, such that it becomes a groundswell with a lot of momentum. Oh, amazing. There's several threads there that I hope we can pick up on because that's really, I mean, there's such a beautiful thing about this panel is all the great context. It's very prismatic, all the levels that we can look at this from. I want to turn this to Sahar too. Like we've been talking about technology and history and I think we should definitely be talking about the possibilities for creatives and their role in all this too. Um, you know, we talked about, or I was talking to you about protest art, right? And should we call it resistance art or revolution art and all that? Um, but whatever we call it, is this a new dawn for creatives and their roles in this type of revolution? Oh, 100%. And it's, um, it is like revolution. It is art for revolution. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, um, I always say this, I've said this before. Like I would say in Farsi, like, which is like creativity isn't creativity if it doesn't have a message. Um, so I always say, well, if I talk about myself and the people I work with who are also artists, our foundation of everything we do is activism based. Um, and it's the decentering of ourselves and looking around us and seeing what needs attention. Um, so I think it's this revolution um, can be interpreted in many different ways and people can use their creativity in so many different ways to talk about it. It's important, like we said, it's like not a protest anymore, this is a revolution and it needs to be spread out. I know a lot of creatives within the West or within Iran who are absolutely silent and I think um, it's heartbreaking to see that because it's, there's nothing more upsetting and scarier to see someone with so much talent not use it for the right thing. Um, and I think, what does that even mean? So I think for this revolution, it's so important for creatives to use their voice 
And it's been amazing to see how many people actually have been using that. Um, we look at different artists within Iran and outside of Iran who've been doing that, especially through illustration, like Instagram. This is the thing when we talk about technology, it's been amazing to see how much platform it's been given to artists for them to use the activism foundations to produce more art. So I think, yes, like more creators definitely should be getting on this and using the creativity to create artwork for this revolution and, you know, not be silent anymore. It's very yeah, important. It, it seems to roll out in stages. You know, there were some artists at the first, I was like, how can you not respond this moment? You know, how can you not? And then I had to tell myself to calm down. Sometimes the processing time for people is different, yeah. right? They couldn't show up exactly at that moment. But I'm really heartened in these last few months to see people maybe come out. I mean, we have introverts, we have extroverts, we have all sorts of personality types, yeah. obviously, people with all sorts of other tragedies in their lives. But it's I, I, I'm now happy to say that I, there's less creatives that I know that are not saying something exactly. that more. I don't know if that's, it seems like that, right? It's, yeah. it's, it, yeah. But it's hard. And I think there's like, um, just to like talk about more creatives, I literally saw an art piece yesterday. I think loads of big people have shared like Golshif there. There was like an art piece where it linked every part of Iran and all the sounds every part of Iran made up before the revolution. And at the end it like closed off with Zanz and the Yazadi. Or like, like the collective has done so many, every day they're unfortunately putting out drawings of the faces that have been lost, the people who are in prison. And I think centering those faces with artwork is also so important and I've seen a lot of that as well. Yeah, I know that people have been very grateful to the Collective for Black Iranians, yeah. so thank you for the work you guys do. It's they're amazing. extraordinary. So, um, Holly, I wanna go back to this idea of like protest and uprising and and would you say that I mean this is a big question all of you guys can chime in here too I mean we're, we're I think rightfully calling this a revolution as we've said is this the revolution of our era as Iranians is there that potentiality or are we getting ahead of ourselves oh that is a loaded question but if you talk to the protesters on the streets this is their revolution and I think we should be listening to them I mean they're saying very loud and clear that they don't want an Islamic Republic and it's not that they're just in the streets protesting and putting their lives on the line, but they're actually vocalizing it in their chants. They're saying death to the dictator, Akbar dictator, Akbar Khamenei, death to Khamenei. I mean, these are chants we've been hearing for the past few years. Essentially, these protests have been normalized since December 2017, January 2018. But the chants are also a little bit different this time around. They're saying, Azadi, 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 freedom, freedom, freedom. And they're saying, I will fight, I will die, I will take back Iran. And uh, these chants, and we've also heard them say things like, I, I don't want an Islamic Republic anymore. And um, I, I think what's been really key about these protests is several things. One is the continuity. This is the first time we've seen protests day in and day out, nonstop. So even during the Green Movement, they would ebb and flow. There would be days when you wouldn't hear anything and something would happen. But since September 16th, every day there's something going on. Right now, we're day two in a strike. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk to Iranians, whether they're in Tarangelis or Tehran or Zahedan or um, Asfahan or any place, they'll tell you this time is different. And there's a sentiment that this time it's really not like any time before. And um, I think that, you know, 
and I don't, I, I don't mean to hit home on social media so much, but um, I used to be that skeptic that used to not take social media seriously back in the day. I'd be like, oh, this is keyboard activism. But social media has been so important in amplifying these voices. So when we're posting things on Instagram or on Twitter or on our Facebook and talking about it with our friends in our offices, attending protests, um, even when we're in the diaspora and living abroad, like the more energy we give it, the more these protests live. It breathes life because they feel heard. This is a people that has been silenced for 43 years. And every time, again, we can talk about the roles of celebrities in the West and whatnot, but when big celebrity names are drawing attention to it, it means that other people are paying attention. Other people that may have not known the difference between Iran and Iraq, or could even tell you where Iran was on a map. And unfortunately, even in 2022, that's still an issue in the post 9-11 world. And so I really want to hit home about that while you're all sitting here to not underestimate your role as an individual, as an American, in amplifying these voices. I think that's really, really wise and really important to hear. I mean, I know in disability communities, we would be nothing without social media. So often people are simply, you know, it looks like we're in bed resting, but that's what all, all, the only place we can be sometimes with our phones in bed at times. So I really learned that over the last few years, and it's really, really important to, to take that seriously. Thank you so much for that reminder. Um, finally, I want to end, Sahar, you also, um, talked quite a bit about you know, the theme of women life freedom being so central to your work. I think it is for all of us, and we've been very grateful to like our Kurdish brothers and sisters for that. So I'd love to hear what that means to you, and I know you've got a video that we'll be talking about. Too. Yes, so um, women life freedom, like I said in the beginning, just means Iran, but the diversity that, w that, it's, that it holds. Um, and I don't only hold Zanzanigi, Azadi to my heart, I hold Zanjian, Azadi to my heart, um, especially with regards to like my roots and everything. And I know so many people come from different minorities around Iran. And I think um, what, that, what those couple of words mean to me is the faces of the protesters who are even to now, like as we speak, unfortunately are losing their lives and die or getting hurt. And it's, it's upsetting that we as artists have to create artwork about people passing, but that's unfortunately some of the only thing we can do. And I think what Woman Life Freedom means to me is creating pieces for these beautiful souls who were freedom fighters and um, have paved the way for their friends and everyone watching to become freedom fighters too, and whether it will be in Iran or outside of Iran. So that's what Woman Life Freedom means to me and means to my artwork. Um, it's about centering their faces and kind of taking a step back myself and putting them at the front. This was Nika, this was, this was Hadith, this was Khodanur, like this is Kion, this is Mona. Like that's what it means to me. Like, that's really beautifully put. And there's so much to be learned from so many of the activists and their message of that diversity makes us stronger here. And Iran is a very diverse country, much like the US, you know, and we've got many, many groups and all that whole is what makes us so beautiful, you know? I think that's the glory of it. 
Um, I know I'm being asked, I know we have, we have to go along, but we're gonna keep talking during the Q&A too. Um, I know that's gonna be a big part of it, but I do want to say thank you so much for being a part of this with us. And there's gonna be Q&A, there's also gonna be questions, and there's also gonna be a video. So I'm emotional, so I might be screwing up the order of that, <laughs> I hope not. But they, is that correct, Moira? Yes. Yeah. Please queue up right here, say your name, and keep your question brief so that we can get to as many as possible. Here's a question that came in through the online chat room. What parallels, if any, do you see between the current protests in Iran and the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States? Great question. I, I can start, but uh, social media as well, you can, can speak to that. Um, I think one of the things to, to look at, and I talked about the historical context with Iran, but I think it's also important to talk about the transnational context. And you know, if we think about the seeds of, of social movements that have been sown over the last decade, the, the, they are creating roots and branches um, that are strengthening each other. And so I actually think that the movement for black lives, um, one of the things I hear consistently from folks in Iran is that movements like the movement for black lives and also hashtag me too, those were formative in helping folks find their voice, in helping folks find their courage. And so I think that, that um, that's been an inspiration. I also think you can see parallels um, with the use of videos and, and social media and the way in which brutality that is captured. I mean, to, we, are, we are at ASU, so I can use a, 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 an academic term, it's a Foucauldian term, called visual parhesia. And that's basically when you capture on video uh, a moment of trauma that actually helps you believe that it was real and not something that you imagined so that you're not gaslighting yourself. And so visual parhesia is this, is this you know, really central part of the movement for black lives. And it is absolutely a central part of what we're seeing. It was that viral uh, video and the images of Mahsa Jina Amini hooked up to you know, those tubes in intensive care. That was the moment, very similar to the murder of George Floyd, which was captured and those, those iconic um, uh, uh, words that, that echoed um, throughout you know, everybody's, it was these bone chilling um, uh, words and images that gave people the courage and the resilience to fight and to say enough is enough. That's beautifully put. Yeah. I think a lot of black American movements have been really inspiring for Iranians throughout the last several decades. I mean, we, I always remind my students we owe a big debt to black Americans Absolutely. in such a way of like, I think a lot of movements, definitely. We have a question here. Um, I'm not an expert on Iran, so I hope I'm not gonna say something that's really inaccurate. But when I think about my understanding of the 79 revolutionary movement was that they had no intention of, or wanting a, a very conservative, repressive, Isla Islamic republic to kind of take over when the, the Shah left. Um, but that there was a power vacuum and that led to I totally have kind of taking over and seeing what you have now. So my question is for the current movement, if it is successful, is there also a simultaneous 
process that the, where the movement is thinking about, okay, who, who will our leaders be? What will the leadership look like? So that, you know, it, again, if you're successful, that, that doesn't leave a power vacuum and that leads to something even worse. Thank you, Glenn. Holly, would you like to take that? <laughs> sure. Um, well, I, I think when you're looking at the situation on the ground, I, I think one of the big lessons for the regime with 2009 versus now is they quickly went after anybody that could potentially be an opposition and figure and jailed them. And even before these protests, the Islamic Republic had a history of imprisoning and arresting dissidents. And so a lot of the biggest, brightest people right now that could be leading these protests, like Majid Tawakoli, for example, Hussein Aronaghi, although he just was let on, I believe, um, out briefly just on furlough. Um, a lot of these big voices in Iran have been silenced, and it's, be, and it's for that very reason, and might I say not just silenced, but have had to flee into exile. And uh, um, even people like Nasrin Soutoudeh, who's in prison, I'm just name dropping right now, Nargis Mohammadi, there's just so many impressionable people that can mobilize and lead, but the regime has stopped them from that ability. And so that doesn't mean that that opportunity is not there. I think for, I've said this before and I'll say it again in a separate um, panel, is that I know there's a lot of skepticism, like this is a leaderless movement you'll hear people bring up. And I, I think that protesters don't need our skepticism, they need our support. And just because it's not leaderless doesn't mean it's meaningless. So when you're looking at people in the streets and you're saying, well, they don't have a leader, they will get to that point. Let them get to where they want to go, which is ending this Islamic Republic. And you'll be, um, you'll be surprised at where this goes because this is a highly educated country that is well-read. And um, yes, they've lived under an authoritarian government, but in some limited ways, they had, it's been a hybrid regime, and so they have some experiences in the voting process and whatnot. And so I, I, I would just say do not underestimate the people of Iran is all I have to say. I think that's, that's a really good way to put it. We have another question. Hello, uh, my name is Sarah Bamoudi. I'm an Iranian-American citizen. And uh, the reason I came here today was because I feel like I haven't done enough to help the movement and I feel powerless to help, um, yeah, sorry. The, the people are suffering in Iran so much. It's so unfair. And that's why I came, because I want to know what I can do to help. Because I feel really powerless, and I don't know what else to do, except for spread the, spread the word and keep putting people, like, on the issues, like on social media and stuff. I know that's what we've talked about, and, but is there anything else that we can do? Thank you so much. Um, what was your name again, my love? Sarah, Sarah Mahmoudi. Okay, nice to meet you, Sarah. Um, obviously, like we said on social media, like I know we will try our best to be on social media. Some of us don't have that much people that are like following our pages to be able to have that influence. Um, but I think it's about just keeping your eye out for what's going on and just making sure to share that and organizing. Um, organizing within, do you like go to university by any chance? No, no, I, I work in a nightclub and I didn't even know about any of the protests that were happening in West 
Westwood or anything. Like, I wasn't currently like following any of the Iranian American organizations, so I had no idea. And I have lots of friends who are not Iranian who want to help, and they don't know what to do, and they don't even know where to go or what to look up to okay. help. How so did you find out about this tonight? I've, I've been a fan of Zokolo Public Square before. I actually haven't been to one of these uh, meetings in like six years, but I just decided, you know, and there's lots of subjects you guys cover, but this one is really important to me. I'm not just Iranian-American, I'm Mexican-American too. So, and I feel like, I, I mean, I'm 28 years old and I feel like young people are what is gonna help this uh, revolution, especially Generation Z. They've done a lot for any cause. So that's, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to start my own organization next year to be an umbrella organization to unite the ones that we have in the country. So that's why I came today because I wanted to see what you guys had to suggest on what young people like me could do who are not super educated or um, involved in the community right now to help the movement in Iran. Yeah. So yeah, the fact that I think you're even here is amazing. Mm -hmm. That's a start and also um, please do, um, I know Middle East Matters is a platform that has created another page which talks about all the protests that are going on around the world in California, Los Angeles, and coming to these protests, you get to see people and meet people, and that will allow you to form. I remember one of my best friends from Boston, she was saying, like, I don't know what to do, and she used her dance group to organize something and protest in Boston, and then I helped her link someone from the other side of Boston together. So it's, it's all of this is about community and reaching out to people. Like, we're all here. If you need to, like, talk to any of us, we're here, we're with you. Um, so I think you coming here is a massive start and it can only go further from here. So thank you for even coming, and this is a beautiful beginning. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, thank you, it's really incredible. Um, and reaching out, also, I have to remind a lot of my friends, a lot of activists, a lot of this time, like be, when they say be our voice, like it also means like listen too. It's very easy to, for us to get mad when somebody is mad at us, right? But activism is messy. And so feelings will get hurt. There'll be days where we're like, oh, why is this person yelling at me? Oh, what, you know, there's like all these feelings that will always come up. So having the patience to still stick with all of us. <laughs> we're all very traumatized. It's all very difficult. Sometimes it might not look right, you know, like what's happening, but taking that extra time and extending that benevolence and kindness. And like, I, it sounds like you do do that organically. So thank you. I'm trying. I feel like I haven't done anything. You're here. You're here. You're here. here. You're here and Thank you want to start an organization. That and says a lot. That's a huge that's a huge deal. And you can also write to your legislators. I mean, you can write to people and you can help bring different activist movements together as well. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank you so much. You. It's amazing. Any um does anyone else have more? should we go to the video for a yes. second and go yeah, we can oh, oh yes, we have one last one. Mm. Come to our spot. Say your name. My name is Nima. I, th I think this is, this is all about religious extremism, controlling women's bodies. And I thought I'd like to hear you guys talk about the parallels. You know, the women in Iran are fighting to change this, to go away from this extremism. Meanwhile, here in America, the laws are changing to control women's bodies more. And I think a lot, what a lot of people don't realize, that religious extremism isn't very much different. It's trending that direction. Certainly, it would take a lot to get to the extremism that we see in Iran, but what parallels do you see there? and How can we change things there while also hoping to change things here? Thank you for asking that. 
I see a lot of parallels made um, these days between the two, especially with Democratic members of Congress. Um, but the truth of the matter is that we live in a democracy. We have checks and balances. There's opportunities to mobilize and organize and vote people in and out. And these opportunities don't exist under an Islamic Republic, an authoritarian government. And as much as we'd like to draw those parallels and um, yes, there, it is a matter of controlling women's bodies. There's opportunities and privileges we're granted here that we don't, um, that Iranian women don't get to exercise. And that's why they're literally dying in the streets. Um, and so I think that while I do see that commonalities with um, the, the essence about religion, um, I think that comparing the two is unfair and unjust to what's happening in Iran. We have our last question. Hi, um, I'm Chantel. Um, I'm an uh, activist here for abortion rights in this country. Um, so I actually appreciate you, uh, the response you gave to the last question. But I also wanted to ask the young woman who was up here earlier asking what can we do here. Um, you know, uh, this, this statement also says, people of the world take up the cry of revolution from Iran as your own. So what can people here in, you know, what's the, what, what do you see the role of people in the U.S., women in the U.S. rising up, taking up this cry for revolution, liberation, um, and the kind of like, uh, I guess, the, um, the effect that has, not just on women in Iran and everyone else rising up in Iran, but what if the whole world, you know, was rising up in the same way, you know, that the people in Iran are doing, how that could actually ensure this, you know, removal of the Islamic, the Islamic regime um, and, and getting free, you know, what they're fighting for, freedom, you know, so. Thank you. I could try to I take that one. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if it was a year ago or two years ago, Moira, that Mia Parrish and I did an event at Zocalo on transnational feminism, and we spoke about this new wave of justice feminism. Um, and one of the things that this wave of justice feminism ushered in is it kind of broke down the notion that feminism was created in the United States <laughs> and only, you know, that it, that it was a, sort of a very um, white feminism. But, you know, and it, and it brought forward the intersectional roots of feminism and it brought forward and it sutured things like the movement for black lives and feminism and civil rights and, and all different kinds of rights. And so justice feminism has been an extremely important part of social movements in the last five years, certainly, but you could say even five to 10 years. Um, and it's been feminists, justice feminists, sharing strategies across the globe some of you probably remember, you know, um, Boko Haram's uh, kidnapping of, of women and the campaign, uh, hashtag bring back our girls, where uh, justice feminists organized across borders. Um, you had Mujeres en la Marche uh, in Chile, which was again, uh, transnational feminists helping each other, sharing strategies. Um, the list goes on and on. And then certainly in the Middle East, you've seen it with the Arab Spring, some people call it, you know, Iran, it was the Iranian summer, and then you had the Arab Spring, um, but you certainly have seen the sharing of strategies. So to, to, to speak to your question, I think to continue that thread of justice feminism is to continue to, ha to see the fight as a collective, to share strategies. And, you know, one of the things that Purchisa, you said that really resonated, is like, you know, activism is messy. And, and 
you know, conflict can be seen as a form of collaboration. Like, how can we take conflict and not have it be something to resolve or manage, but how can we take conflict and use it to collaborate and make the movement better and stronger? So what can you do? I would say share strategies, don't be afraid of conflict, and help amplify these movements so that they reverberate across the globe. And just to add, definitely. I know some Iranians have had a heartbreaking experience coming to the US and sometimes finding it more conservative for themselves than Iran. And it's horrifying. How does that doesn't even seem logical to us? But they have said to me over and over, we thought America was going to be progressive. So please try to keep America progressive for your own sake, but for lots of our people too who come here and believe in some of the so-called principles, right? But I don't think they have to be so-called. I think we have it in our grasp to keep places free and as free as possible. Um, uh, I'll never forget a student that I had who was fresh from Evin Prison in New York. And I had to you know, illegally house and all this stuff and whatever. You know, do we do that? <laughs> Hopefully, you can open your heart to that. Because like, we're working with all sorts of people around the country right now who are suicidal, depressed, cast aside from their parents. They don't have money. They might not look a certain way that fits in a certain thing, but if you really open your heart and take the time and hear people, I mean, there's nothing sadder than if you walk out on the streets of LA right now. You know, we've seen this our whole lives. We've been here in LA and it's only getting worse and worse and worse. And this is one of the richest places in the world, California. <laughs> you know, put pressure on our governments too. You know, believe in, believe in that because I know it's a very difficult time and it's easy to say this, but there's a lot of smart people who are coming up with solutions, but even the small solutions I think add up to something larger. Even rhetoric I think is helpful at this point for sure. We have so much going on and we just need time to talk about it and you know, people are risking their lives and have been risking their lives for many generations on the ground. The least we can do is have those discussions, even if they're awkward and difficult discussions. Okay, we, I, th I think we do have to wrap up. Sahara, would you like to yes. say a few words? I know some people here aren't from Iran or just here to learn, but the gravity of um, the way some of these people are killed is very heavy. And I think I wanted to kind of speak about Nika really sits on my heart in a different, I don't, all of them do, but I think about Nika every day and I think about the way she was killed, unfortunately, in Iran. And I'm sure loads of, um, there are many like, news outlets have covered this and talk, talked about the reality of this, but you're in Iran, you don't, um, you're not allowed to kill um, virgin women, you know? So what they do beforehand, um, trigger warning, but this is the stuff that happens and this is the gravity of the regime and how disgusting it is. We're gonna, uh, there's gonna be a bit of a reception still till about what time, some people are asking? Nine. Till nine o'clock. Okay, thank you so much. Come feel free to say hi and whatever else. But thank you very, very much.